Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week we're here to help you persevere through the tough times, be your most productive self and get that work in progress published. Wherever you are in your publishing journey, we've got your back. This week we are talking to Gail Carragher about analytics for authors, but in a non-scary way, I promise. There's no such thing you're completely making it up, Ellie Goley Bright. There is a such thing. I promise you everything's going to be fine in Gail's very capable hands. Okay, I I will admit Gail is capable. That's as far as I'm going. I don't (laughs) think numbers are not scary ever. Big shout out to our podcast patrons for all of your support. As a patron, you'll get early access to episodes, the chance to submit questions for our guests, and access to our bonus series, Healthy Habits. Healthy Habits isn't your typical productivity advice. We're not here to tell you to get up at 4am and go for a three-hour run. Hell no. We're exploring the latest research to find small changes you can make in your life to be happier, healthier, and more productive in your writing life and beyond. To start developing healthier habits today, Come join our community at patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. Hello, editing Christina here. I just wanted to pop in and let you know that because Gail's interview is so juicy and so full of great information, but also really long, we decided to split it up into two episodes. So the first part you'll be able to listen to right now, and the second part will be available on the 3rd of November. So returning this week is the lovely Gail Carragher. Welcome back to the Writer's Mindset. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be here for this discussion. It, it Yeah, it's like a, a dream come true. <laughs> so can you just give our listeners a little bit of a refresher about who you are and what you do? And also, what it is that you love about data and analytics and tracking and numbers and all the scary logical things that a lot <laughs> of us creatives, frankly myself included, know we should do, but don't do for all the reasons I just listed. <laughs> um, all right. Well, hello. My name is Gail Carragher. I uh, write steampunk, uh, sci-fi, fantasy, young adult, all sorts of stuff. Uh, That's how I make my living. I'm a full-time six-figure author. Um, This is where I like prove my point so that maybe you think I'm an agent of trust. I am wide and hybrid, although I haven't been published with a traditional publisher in a while. I have um, a little over a dozen New York Times bestsellers. I'm in about 20 different languages and uh, multiple different formats and things like that. I've experienced with the whole range of author life from Hollywood movie deals to being adapted into a graphic novel. I'm very focused on organic sales because I come to being a hybrid author from a traditional platform. Also, I'm very, very lazy. So my perspective tends to be trying to rig up organic sales as much as possible so that it does all the work for me. uh, So that anytime I write something new, that kind of acts as a booster slash advertising for my entire back catalog, which means I do, I have played with, but I do very little uh, paid advertising. That's just not really part of my business model. I do paid advertising for other reasons. Uh, one of them being tracking things and understanding data. I write, so I earn my living full-time as an author, and I do that by producing less than three books a year. It's usually one novel and a novella of some kind and then a weird experimental project because I like to play with things like 
for example, I haven't, but I could do something like a cookbook that ties into my world. And I and, and I entirely support myself on my my fiction writing income, although I also do write nonfiction and I do speaking and presenting stuff like that too. Uh, so there it is. That's me. Quite the list of achievements there. Very. Oh, oh, oh. You asked me why I like uh, data and uh, data analysts. And uh, that is because I'm a social scientist by training. I think um, I've always enjoyed numbers because they don't lie, uh, although they can be made to lie if you study stats. So I have a minor in stats. Um, and that's part of my training. I come out of archaeology and archaeology has a lot of logistics involved in it. It's one of the more science heavy of the social sciences, if you think about it. Um, and so I love, love, love spreadsheets. Uh, they make me very happy. I like organizing data. Um, I like color coding things. I kind of write this way too. I am a big Scrivener fan because I'm very visual and I kind of organize things and modularize things and that just makes me really happy. Um, and why do I like it so much? I think because uh, I'm a bit of a control freak. And um, if you know your data really well, you can allocate both money and time much better. So essentially, it just allows me to be as efficient as possible. So um, I don't want to waste my time, for example, on a social media platform, if it's not actually effective for my author career. And understanding data and following the data allows me to make those decisions confidently to abandon something like Twitter, or to turn it into an outpost, because even though I'm getting clicks, I'm not getting conversions, that kind of thing. So that's that's um, mostly why I am a big fan of analytics and looking at analytics from an author perspective, because it allows me how to best spend my energy, which is relatively limited. Absolutely. And it's it's such a worthwhile thing to do to make sure you're spending those energy in the right places. We were talking in a previous episode about how we need to look into these data analytics some more, and then Gail very kindly got in touch and offered to help us all out and go through it all. So um, we will dive into the delicious data. That that was off the cuff. I didn't even plan that. Uh, <laughs> what data should authors be tracking and what are the benefits of doing that? Okay, so the first thing that I think most uh, laymen, shall we say, don't understand if you don't come out of a, a sort of statistics or a data analytics, uh, data analysis background is um, there's a difference between demographics and analytics. And it's actually a really good idea for an author to access both of these things. So um, demographics tends to be data that's provided by an aggregator or it's information that you have gathered and then aggregated through experience like surveys, on the ground research. Um, and then these will be things that you may or may not collate yourself. So uh, demographics is things like your readers, general age, gender, income brackets. Um, but it also includes things like comparative titles and comparative authors, what we would call comps for as as authors. And so you're and so this can play into metadata and keywords. So you're probably somewhat familiar with your reader base's demographics if you have any contact with them. And these can be very broad scope. So if you write romance, you know you're targeting a specific gender range demographic most of the time. And so that's what demographics mean. Whereas analytics is data that's provided by a platform on your specific audience within that platform's ecosystem. So 
Google may provide you with analytics about the searches around your name and connected to your website, your SEO. WordPress may provide you with analytics on the number of visitors that you're getting, the bounce rates, stuff like that. Your newsletter handler, which is probably the analytics you're most familiar with, will provide you with information about the open right and number of click-throughs. So analytics can be converted into demographics, but only if you have access to data from more than one author. In other words, uh, in order to get demographic info on your genre, you need to be talking to and sharing this kind of information with other authors who also write in your genre, which is one of the many reasons I like to encourage authors to really like at least try to look into some of this information because the more information you have on your own career and are able to exchange and share with other authors, the more power you have under any given circumstance because you know this is all information. Um, and then that's, that is, of course, a way that we can protect ourselves from being taken advantage of from publishers, vendors, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, data and analytics are, uh, demographics and analytics are both data, but they're slightly different and they kind of are used in different ways. And you are probably accessing both of them already. Uh, if you, if you have started your career as an author, you just don't really realize it or you're maybe ignoring them or something. And I take it by the sounds of it then, um, what you explained there, they're both kind of equally as important, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's just important to also clarify that they're different aspects. Yeah. Um, and at its base level, analytics tells you if you're familiar, if you have an MBA and you're familiar with this kind of thing, analytics is much more tied to a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your reader, which means it's more to do with sales. Um, whereas demographics is more to do with understanding a broader reader base, which means it's more to do with marketing. So if you're doing, thinking of something in terms of like, uh, uh take, doing an ad advertisement campaign or something, you're probably going to be looking more at demographics. But if you're thinking about something like what kind of newsletter bait you should offer to your specific Readers, then you're probably going to be thinking more in terms of analytics. Very interesting. I like that. With regards to that data then that you are tracking, how in-depth do you go with that? How in-depth should people be going? So I think it's really important. And again, I think this is probably because I come out of the social science it, for the author to understand what their question is. Otherwise, you're just sort of gathering a lot of data and you don't really know why you're doing it or what you're doing. So I tend to go into what I, so I do actually have what I would call maintenance analytics and like maintenance sales data that I gather that just, I mostly use, and we can go into this, but I mostly look at like per week, kind of a short list of things. And it's mostly just to see if there's a red flag of some kind, like, like, do I get a spike? for some reason and why, or do I get a drop for some reason and why? So that's that's kind of maintenance, but that's a sort of different thing. Um, when I'm really targeting or collecting data, that's because I have a specific question that I want answered. And that question should be a, a, a SMART goal of some kind, S-M-A-R-T, which means you want a very specific answer to a very specific question. And that can be a question like, which social media platform is the most effective for actually selling a book rather than and which is or which is the most effective for getting the word out about a book. So those are the kind of questions you might ask yourself. Um, and so some of the things that I track are like, I use website redirects a lot. And trust me, we'll be going back to this. But you might be thinking about um, what's an effective newsletter bait or um, what increases new subs to your newsletter or decreases them. Uh, you can use surveys for quick 
gathering of data. Um, I survey my readers all the time just because I tend to have a lot of them and now they sort of exist in one ecosphere. So there's like a bunch of them I can just tap whenever I feel like it. And then I uh, look at Google Analytics a lot. That's because one of my like overarching strategies, which I talked about being a, a person who relies on organic sales is trying to get people on my newsletter as much as possible. So like, that's kind of the point of view of my online presence. And therefore, it's also the point of view of my website is to get people on the newsletter. Um, and therefore, like, how many people visit my website is also kind of tied to how many people are getting on my newsletter. I also track other uh, sort of the popularity of other things like my Instagram posts, uh, my Tumblr stats, uh, my Wikia data stats, and then occasionally I'll take a look at some of my Outpost social medias. Outpost basically means it's a platform upon which I exist, but it's mostly not a platform I engage with. It acts kind of like a vehicle to get people back over to my website. Um, that's how I use Pinterest, for example. So pretty in-depth, I guess. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> but I just thought it was worth sharing as well. Do you have kind of like a, a list of all the different data sources you use? Can you just run through that briefly at all? Okay, so I would say the data sources I rely on the most, so like the weekly ones that I check in pretty regularly, are Google Analytics with the website. And then I use a WordPress plugin for my website called redirection and i check in with redirection pretty regularly um it, i would call that probably the most vital tool i have that i have applied myself i look at my newsletter on a weekly basis how many subs and unsubs and i have a onboarding survey so i take a look at my survey answers every week as well like i said the google analytics specifically with google i'm looking at top pages i do a blog so knowing which blogs are popular is useful to me, especially if it's an old one that suddenly becomes popular, did put somebody talking about it. Is the end matter for that blog post uh, directing people to my newsletter or to the latest book or whatever I want to direct them to? It also tells me what my search algorithms are like my, you know, for my, for vanity alerts and things like that. It also tells me which of my outposts are the most effective. If you're looking at your Google Analytics, it will give you basically a list of where all the traffic is coming to your blog. And uh, I'm always very pleased to see Pinterest right up there, even though I'm not really active there. It means people are pinning my blog posts and coming to my website from Pinterest. And then like, and then I look at uh, the top three IG posts. That's because I repurpose content a lot. So a really popular Instagram post is probably going to end up in my newsletter because my fan base has already told me they like that image. I might as well reuse it. Tumblr and Wikia are kind of weird things that only I use, uh, but I just keep an eye on them anyway. And then I also utilize reader surveys like I talked about. I would say I do those monthly and sometimes they're information I'm really very interested about my reader base as, a, as the primary demographic I have direct access to. And so I will ask them things like, uh, you know, there was a recent uh, big debate over the nature of hardbacks because Barnes and Noble is phasing out hardbacks for debut authors. And there's a lot of discussion to be had around this, but I was genuinely curious how my reader base felt about hardbacks. It's like everybody was talking about it from the back end, from the traditional publishing side of the equation. No one had really just gone to the readers and been like, how do you interface with hardbacks now? as opposed to how you used to. 
and and most of them said something which I um I resonate with myself and have noticed as an author, but also have kind of seen trending over the years, which is they collect art hardbacks as kind of a luxury scarcity thing now. They're they aren't likely to buy a newer author in hardcover. So I'm like, that's a trend that I recognized, but now I put it out to 40,000 fan group and 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 got some actual, you know, 5,000 people responded. And I was like, well, that's pretty decent data from a, a core group of readers to to say, yeah, a lot of people are, are kind of moving off of, of hardcover. And some of that's age of my reader base who like, they're like, yeah, the, it's physically hard to hold them up. And it, with the onset of e-readers, I can enlarge the font. So like you can have a real quality as well as quantity discussion. So quantitative analysis versus qualitative analysis um, if you're running a survey. So um, and and sometimes those surveys are just silly little polls, like which pasta shape do you like more? But uh, <laughs> you know, hey, the uh, hardback thing is not just about age. I just got tiny hands, man. I can't read that book for very long. It's yeah, hard work. I, my well, I'm I'm a writer, right? So my wrists get really easily fatigued. Yeah. So it's just hard for me to hold it up. Yeah, personally. I can barely hold a paperback open with one hand. Never mind about bloody hardback. <laughs> yeah, hardback, it's, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, the time I bought a hardback was because it had a really pretty cover, and it's actually an, almost like an A5 size. So Ooh, it's big. fine to hold because uh, it's not like as gigantic as your average hardback release. And to be uh, fair, yeah. it is The Woman in Black. So it's not like it's a new release and it's quite a short book as well, I think. Yeah, that's the that's the collector thing. Um, you know, and, and social media has had an impact on that as well, specifically Instagram, which is a demographic. So millennials are, are a lot of millennials are on in Instagram. And so they are also coming around to liking pretty hardbacks in particular and becoming collectors also as they age into much higher levels of disposable income and things like that. So I, I mean, you, it's just really interesting to watch kind of trend. I've been in this business for over a decade now. And so watching the way trends move is interesting. And you can do that with this kind of tracking. And then we're still on the things I track. I also keyword track. And by that, I mean, I'll bop into some of the places that I harvest keywords and comp authors and comp titles from um, in order to see which who I'm being associated with, for example. And I'll do that about once a month and I just have a big old keyword document. And I think I keep them all there for possible future advertising campaigns. I haven't done an ad campaign in, in like three or four years, but also just to be like, just to see who I'm, who like my brand, what other authors I'm being associated with for lack of a better term. Um, and I should say I do that and I, everybody should think about this if you have it, which is I do that, uh, I do my comp titles on Audible more often than not in incognito mode because it's a cleaner catch these days for someone like me who's a who's a wide um, hybrid author because it, it Audible is not going to be polluted by KU or anything else similar. Since I'm not in KU, my reader base is different and therefore I can't really use those keywords in comp titles because we don't have a lot of crossover buyers. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things I track. Um, and then for sales data weekly, I track mostly just Amazon, uh, KDP and um, ACX. And then I also look at my returns in those venues because I find that data particularly interesting. And the fact that they bury it means that I should probably keep a pretty close eye on it. <laughs> 
That is a lot of data to be tracking. <laughs> um, it actually works out. It's pretty streamlined. So it works out to just a, you know, just a few things. I, I basically just have like a, a systems little sheet that says, check here, check here, check here, check here, check here. And then I take a look at the weekly in each venue that I can. And then, you know, that's it. And it's just like a, a Friday thing. It's a lot more intense and focused and more daily tracking when I have a launch because uh, I do pre-ordered launches. And that means that I can track everything very, very meticulously, especially through Amazon, since Amazon, Amazon will report your pre-orders every single day. So for me, doing a pre-order is really important because it's the most access I have to click to conversion rates. Um, and I admit it is click to pre-order conversions, um, which is a lot harder for uh, less established authors to do because pre-orders rely on an existing fan base that trusts you and has faith in your books and is willing to pre-order from you. So most of the data that I collect from that kind of thing is just where are my existing fans more than anything and my existing fans who are willing to buy where are they hanging out more than anything but it is the best direct data that i have for launch tracking so i am almost always tracking a launch to some degree and sometimes i'm doing very strategically and sometimes i'm just launching into the world but um yeah so launch tracking is something that i love and I will create pie charts and stuff like that. <laughs> like, because it allows me to genuinely figure out where my fans are that are true fans willing to buy a book from me. Um, and where it's just, I have a ton of followers, but they just want to talk about uh, the book industry, for example. <laughs> Twitter. And they're not actually going to buy my books. So uh, if that if I'm on social media in order to interface with my readers and my true fans, which is why I am on social media, then it allows me to know where to spend my time the most. That's obviously a lot of things to track. Is mm. there like a minimum you think someone should be tracking if they're going, oh my God, I can't do that. My brain's going to explode. Please just like end me now. Like what would you say is the absolute minimum to ease someone into the tracking concept sure i would say um so i have a a presentation that i do which is like every author should want w-a-n-t so if you're going hybrid or if you're going if you're starting from indie whatever it is w-a-n-t is you need to have a website um uh a is amazon author central you need to control your identity on amazon author central um and i'm sorry i like i shouldn't be using like you need, but I, I genuinely believe that uh, you're kind of an idiot if you're not doing these things. So uh, your own website, the reason you need your own website is it's a unidirectional portal. It is a place where you can house everything. If you do take off and become very, very popular, you need to be able to have a corner of the internet that is yours that you can control. So that's why you need your own website. Amazon Author Central, because it is your visual portal to all of your Amazon readers who are historically the hardest to onboard to a newsletter. So controlling that ecosystem is super important. And it will be for most of us, the majority of our income from an indie stream. But as a traditionally published author, you need to control your um, Amazon Author Central as well, because it is um, the place where you are authenticated and validated in the reader's eyes. Um, so if you eventually do decide to go hybrid, or if you want to put 
publish a short story or something, Amazon believes that you really exist if you own if you own your own identity there. Um, because and, otherwise, and you, you're just pretending to be an author. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> you're not on Amazon. Trust you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, even if your books are on Amazon from a different vendor, just go in. And, in other words, from your traditional publisher, just go in and claim them as yours. Just give yourself an identity there. Like, make sure they know you're a real author. And then uh, W A N is a newsletter. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, there are definitely demographics that are really hard to get onto a newsletter. Very young, the youngest demographics. If you write YA, it's pretty difficult. Uh, but a newsletter is your only direct access to um, to your super fans and eyeballs that cannot be shut down by Amazon or uh, <laughs> anything else. So, um, and you get to keep all of those email addresses. You can download them and save them and move them to a different newsletter handler if you like. So like newsletter is super important. I'm sure you guys have discussed that before. And then T, I think every author should have two social media presences and they can be whatever two social medias you enjoy the most. Um, and that is mostly because I use those presences for data collecting <laughs> and testing and talking to people and stuff. So that's the W-A-N-T. So knowing that that's my perspe perspective on this, um, to answer your question on what is the most limited thing you should have, you should be interfacing with and tracking or at least looking at your Google Analytics for your website. So your search rankings and those sorts of things and understanding what that means, at least to some extent, and your newsletter analytics. Those are the two that are like the most important for you to have access to. Because if your goal is to get people to find you, join your newsletter, um, interface with you as a super fan of some kind, then you need to know what you're doing to achieve that goal. Um, and the only way to know if what you're doing is effective is understanding those two analytics centers. So those are the two I would say. So being familiar with your newsletters analytics and your website's analytics. We do have two really good episodes of newsletters, actually. We've got Tammy Lebrecht talking about reader magnets. Great. And we've got Robin Kennedy talking about email marketing psychology, which is a lot more fun than it sounds. And they're also two of the funniest people I know. Yes. So definitely check them out because they are absolutely uh, excuse hilarious. me I, I thought i was supposed to be the funniest person you know um what um you're the, you're the funniest person i speak to on a daily basis oh yeah that's a great accolade yeah <laughs> that doesn't work my break my this cold ruined me i haven't got a bad comeback <laughs> i love you ellie <laughs> good answer <laughs> she's just glaring at me stroking her cat like, <laughs> just <laughs> just some sort of evil villain in the corner stroking my cat like mm. and cosmo blends into your top oh it's purring oh there's a purring oh, can you hear him <gasps> yes oh my god that's the best thing ever yeah oh, <gasps> oh, <my little> moment. <laughs> he is now about seven months old Oh my gosh, it's Bubba. He's a big he's a big boy. Look at him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Big baby. Big yeah. baby. He's got With big paws. Yeah, he was just meowing, so he's like, pick me up, pick me up. And, okay. I have the opposite, which is a tiny cat with the quietest purr in the in the world. You can only feel her purr. You can very rarely hear it. Oh, see, Frankie is a massive cat, and he does purr, but like, see, you have to feel it. He doesn't do it that often either. But Cosmo, yeah, he's the little purr machine. Excellent. Love it. Love it. So how does all of this data guide or influence the career choices that you make in the short and the long term? Depending on what 
kind of author you are and what market you are targeting is definitely going to sort of dictate what you want to track, for example, much in the same way as it would dictate what you might offer as newsletter um, for your newsletter onboarding sequence or your magnet. Um, I call it bait because I'm aggressive. So, you know, for example, like like I said, my point of view is as a, a wide hybrid author who can only produce a certain number of books a year. Now, if I were a indie exclusive KU author who wrote one book a month or something like that, what data I want to track and my perspective would be entirely different, right? I would be much more interested. I would be enslaved to the Amazon ecosystem, not to be rude, but there it is. Uh, but that is a choice you can absolutely make. But it means very carefully tracking and monitoring that data and ensuring that you're not red flagging Amazon in any way. So also keeping a very close eye on the chatter in the indie sphere about what's causing stuff to be dungeoned in Amazon or knocked out of KU and that kind kind of a thing. So you want to be, you, you also might consider if you will eventually take your books out of KU, whether you want to have a wide strategy for some of your books in the future, in which case you might be more inclined to bifurcate your newsletter. So to have one newsletter explicitly for your KU customers and another one that's going to be for your wide customers when they happen, because they're going to want to buy different things, they're going to onboard for different reasons to your newsletter, that kind of thing. So you might be running analytics on two, what, is, what amounts to two newsletters, for example. So your approach is going to be materially different depending on what your uh, business model is or what your career model is in terms of how fast you can write, which venues you want to be on, whether you're also traditionally published or not, those sorts of things. So yeah, it does, it really does make a difference. The information you need to know is dictated by where you want to go and how you want to spend your time as a writer, but also because what demographics and analytics are telling you is about your audience and what you write and how you publish it, it impacts your audience, obviously. <laughs> so the two are inexorably linked. I mean, this is, for me, this is the fun thing about data is, I mean, obviously, again, I keep harping on this, but I come to this from a social science perspective. So it's what data can tell us about sort of the culture of the people that is your audience. That's very, very interesting to me. Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently that like, probably if I weren't an author, data analyst would be something that I would love to be specifically in something like the entertainment industry or something, because it's so very interesting to me how popular culture or pop culture inner acts with different audiences and fandoms and stuff. I, I just find that very exciting and interesting. And this is basically giving you information on your own fandom or your your own reader base. And that, I don't know, who wouldn't want to know more about them? Right? Exactly. We're sold, Gail. Like, and I'm sure everyone <laughs> listening is absolutely sold on data analytics now. So okay. tell us then, what kind of tools and software are you using okay. to track all of this and to monitor it and to pull the data out? All right. So I should say there are some good aggregate softwares out there that kind of are really designed to help authors um, collect all of this, specifically if you're a wide author, because you're going to be on so many different platforms and stuff like that. Um, I don't use any of them. <laughs> so unfortunately, I can't recommend them. However, go I'm guessing out. then, is it all just spreadsheets? Just spreadsheets? It's just <laughs> spreadsheets. Yeah, I just collect it myself. Um I know it's terrible, uh, but I like it. Like I it's like. It's so terrible. If that's the system that works for you, that's what we yeah. want to hear about, Gail. Obviously, it's a <laughs> successful system. But I do. But like, do check out um, 
uh, indie author, what's the, in, Wide for the Win, and then there's an indie author, um, massive group, and like 50 Books of 50K, and places like that, um, th- on Facebook in specifically, will have discussions of different like aggregate tools like this. So um, they're, they're places to look for the ones that authors are particularly using or that are catering to authors. And it's probably a good idea to use one of those um, just because then there's other authors talking about this and you can go ask questions of them. Um, I use no aggregate tools. I just use spreadsheets and I just use a lot of the built-in. So Google Analytics or WordPress Analytics or whatever. Um, I will say there is one tool that I hard recommend, and I can't emphasize this enough. Back when we talked about the things to do that are lightweight, that are the least barrier to entry, um, I mentioned that Google Anal- Google or your WordPress analytics and then your newsletter analytics are probably the two you're going to be accessing the most. The one that I recommend most authors build in and utilize the most is a tool called Redirection. And Everybody is probably familiar with um, using something like Bitly or uh, tiny URL or something, uh, a URL shortener that allows you to track um, where, where whatever link you've posted is going. What a lot of people don't know or what a lot of authors don't know is your WordPress site has a plugin that can do that as well. And it's called redirection. And basically it will allow you to build a link to anything that is your website's URL and then whatever slug you want to give it. So whatever little tag work you want to give it. So for example, I have a book called The Heroine's Journey, which is a nonfiction book, and I have a redirection slug built into my website that's basically gailcarriger.com slash hj. And that is a very short URL I can say on something like a podcast. And if you typed it in, it would just redirect you to that book's landing page on my website. That's a very simple way a redirection works, but the beauty of redirection as a plugin and as a piece of software is that you can track everything with it. So if you want to run a test on anything, you can build a baby slug to that website. Um, And by that, I mean, um, so when I have a new book for sale, the redirection is going to point at that book's sales landing page. So for me, that's a book to read landing page, which basically has all the marketplaces that the book is going to be sold in because I have a wide author. If you are not a wide author, you might have that redirect go straight to your Amazon page, however you want to do it. But I use a redirection and the redirection is dedicated to whatever platform that is posted on. So I'll build a special redirection that basically says the book's name and then Facebook group, for example. And then when I post that I have a new book out and here's where you can buy it with the link, I use the redirection link. And then I can go to my website and see how many people clicked on that link specifically to buy the book, which basically is telling me how many people in the Facebook group were interested in looking at this new book of mine. And then I will do that for Twitter. How many people for Twitter were interested? Now, all of these people are being directed to the same place, but I'm being told by the link where they started out. And that's just telling me very specific information about where my interested people are. So this is just clicks. It's not necessarily people who actually buy the book to track 
how where people are actually buying from you need to roll this out on a temporal scale so like you do facebook group on monday facebook page on wednesday twitter on friday and then you see how many sales you get on the pre-order on amazon for each of those days and that will give you it's very loose obviously it's just amazon specific and it's just um and of course people will have maybe have seen it elsewhere uh, but it is the only direct data we have for tracking purposes so anyway so but it's redirection this little tool that allows me to do all of this um it's it's just it's a very minor tool and it's just extremely powerful uh, so if you have a wordpress website which most authors do it's one of the best tools we have out there um, and so one of the things i do weekly is i bop over and check my redirects and i just go in and look organize them by date see which ones are popular hope that if i sent out a newsletter recently those ones are right at the top because that means people engaged with the newsletter um, I take a look to see if there's an interesting spike in my redirects, like ooh, everybody's suddenly buying off this old link that's linked to an old blog post, what's going on there, something like that. Um, it's it's just a really, it's a really powerful little tracking tool. Um, and it's something that's your own website. So it's not, tools like Bitly or TinyURL similarly do this, but they're held by a middleman. You don't, control that data. So um, it's a lot easier just to have it as a plugin. And I have a blog post about it. I think it's probably gailcarriger.com slash redirection, but also you can just Google Gail Carriger tool redirection or Gail Carriger redirection. And then I have a whole blog post about exactly how you set it up for a WordPress site and, um, you know, why, how you, if hearing me talking about it is overwhelming, it's all written out so you can realize why you might want to use it and stuff like that. So that's my hot tip. <laughs> is, is hey, don't let me do that until I'm over this cold because I'll break my website and you know it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Banned. <laughs> banned from editing websites until next week at least. Absolutely. Yes. Don't 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 do this. Like playing with redirect is something that you like. You want to give yourself a nice afternoon when you're highly caffeinated and fully aware and uh, you just want to play um, and, and see. And you can roll it out in a very limited manner. Um, so, for example, the first and most important redirect that you should have is to your newsletter subscription. Mm -hmm. And everywhere and every time you onboard somebody to your newsletter, it should be via a redirection because you might want to change who hosts your newsletter. <laughs> And if you do that and you have all of your newsletter onboarding all over the web in your Amazon author profile and on your Facebook page or whatever, you have to remember where those all are on the internet and go and change them all. But if you have them all via redirect on your website, then all you have to do is search for that URL code and then change them all on your website. And the it's, it's all backend. Uh, this is also how you can handle front matter and back matter. Um, so for example, a lot of authors will claim that you should have newsletter signups at the beginning of your book and also at the end of your book so that people see the front matter sign up in your, um, sample, for example, uh, of your book. I've always wondered if this was true. Uh, and so I tracked it. So, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter at the beginning of the group. It's a redirect that tells me that they came from the beginning of the book. And then you can sign up for my newsletter at the end, and it has a redirect that tells me that that person came from the end of my book. 
Um, and I can, in fact, tell you that for me and my readers, it is about 50-50. So of the signups I get for my newsletter from my front matter and my back matter, half of them are indeed coming from the front matter. So therefore, I keep that verbiage in all of my books because I know it's being effective. So you can do other things like like occasionally people, especially if you have a wide back catalog like I do, occasionally people will say um, it's better to have a list of books of, of the next books in the series or whatever, if you have a lot of books. Um, in other words, it's better to have an also buy after the last page of your book. Whereas other people will say, no, no, you should put a sample of the next book in the series and then a buy button at the end of that sample. Well, I test it. <laughs> so some of my books have samples in them and some of my books have an also buy list in them. And then some of them uh, are exclusively to onboard onto my newsletter. And then I see which ones seem to be the most effective. Now, it's not a perfect A-B test because different books, different series, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is, you know, useful information to have when somebody like claims that this is the most effective tactic. And I can be like, for me, actually, uh, the sample chapter works best. So oh, the power, I love the power and all of that. That's excellent. I love it. Yeah. And that's all tracked through redirection. That's how I know that information. Um, so yeah, it's very, effective. I also know uh, which books, are, so I will switch out my sample chapters. So I know which books onboard a new series better than others. So um, so I have three different universes that I write in, a urban fantasy universe, a historical universe, and a, uh, far, a far future sci-fi universe. But I would like my readers to move between those. Now, genre readers are historically pretty dedicated to just the genre that I like, but I'm pretty sure that my voice is, as a writer is very specific tonally and that my readers, if I can convince them, will pretty happily follow me between genres. And that's just because I talk to them all the time. And I can't tell you how many times someone has said, like, I hate YA, but I finally tried your YA and I love it. And I'm like, that's because it's still me, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so knowing, for example, that I should onboard from my urban fantasy series to my sci-fi series um, and from my historical to my urban fantasy, but only in very specific books is also really useful because the readers will give that sample a try um, in some books, but not in others. So like tracking that is also. So I always, I always, my little redirections will tell me that it's a sample and which book it came from and which book it was leading to so that I know, um, wh again, what's being effective. This is all what's being effective. Now, this is really in-depth stuff <laughs> and it's because I have so many books to play with and I like playing with my own career and I can risk it. But it is, in the end, this is the kind of tactic that you can use for a time-saving tactic. So especially when you're tracking a launch, Knowing, for example, which I do now, that Twitter is not an effective launch platform for me. Um, I like Twitter. I enjoy talking to my fellow authors on Twitter. It is a pretty good way to access other authors. But my particular readers just aren't really hanging out there. And even if they are, they're not buying off of that platform. So it doesn't make sense for me to, yes, I'll tell them when I have a new book out, um, but I don't heavily push it there. And I just don't 
hang out there as much as I used to. Uh, because for me, that ends up being a waste of time. My time is going to be better spent on some of the other platforms. And I made that choice about, you know, I, like I basically I'm like, I have an hour to spend on social media a day, half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening. It has to be spent wisely. Twitter's out. Twitter gets five minutes, <laughs> you know. Um, and I made that choice after tracking a number of launches. So that is how it, this kind of thing can be useful is it, it will guide um, how you best spend your time when you get to a point career wise where how much time you spend on the promotional side of the equation is is really limiting or if you just don't have that personality and don't like doing it. That does sound pretty powerful because like I've been told by readers that they like the sample at the back of the book but like it you know it's not the same as having that actual visual data it's just you know word of mouth and that isn't as powerful in a lot of cases and also you have to be very careful with word of mouth as an author because there's a very specific personal personality type so first of all most readers not all of them but most of them are introverts and there's a very specific personality type that will actually reach out and talk to an author and it doesn't necessarily represent your base but we're inclined to give that person or their opinion weight because they're the one who actually reached out to us now they're also probably a vocal supporter so that is a really good thing and you should absolutely cultivate those people but they don't necessarily represent the statistical majority of your base and that's another reason to track this kind of information because it tells you all of the ghosts right like all of the people out there who are just consuming your books who aren't talking to you who aren't interfacing with you on social media who may not even be on your newsletter um and i you know like i talk about this a lot but i know my my numbers in terms of about what percentage I have on, um, you know, as followers on Amazon and stuff like that, because I track data so much. Um, but I also, it also means that like 1% actually will communicate with you. 10% is probably who's on your newsletter of your reader base. Like, and so all the other people that are just out there buying and consuming your books, uh, the only way you know anything about them is if you try to track them at least a little bit, which I know they hate. <laughs> but we need to know them and, and why they do the things that they do. Otherwise, how can we entertain them and please them as authors, which is presumably um, what, what we want to do. We want to make them happy, our readers, at least I do. Yeah, definitely. You know, when you're linking to stuff on social media, um, I have heard a lot of people say that your best bet is to send them straight to the retailer. But do you think it's actually better to send them to that redirect page on your own website? This is something that I tracked. <laughs> so I've heard this as well. And so I was like, well, this is an interesting question. So this is the kind of thing that I will use ad targeting for. So I was like, okay, let's build a bunch of ad targets where we do, uh, we specifically target, this was back in the day when you could do this kind of thing on Facebook, Kindle users, and then Kobo, and then Apple, and then Barnes and Noble, and then, um, you know, direct to consumer or whatever else things you want to track. Put a direct buy link that I track via redirection that um, goes directly to that platform. And then also do a broader target, which just has like a books to read landing page. So 
The accepted argument is that the more clicks a consumer has to get through and the more options they are given, psychologically too many options yields up overwhelm and uh, like too many click actions is attrition. So people will leave before they complete the process. So having a landing page like books to read or a landing page that is generated by your own website that causes people to then have to make a secondary choice or a secondary click means you lose buyers. Right. So this is like a very complicated thing to try and statistically track. And I did my best. But again, for me and my readers, there was no difference. So it was the exact same number click to conversion, whether I funneled them through a landing page or not. Uh, and I took that as an excuse to always use a landing page forever uh, because they are so easy <laughs> and I like them so much. And That's really um, good to hear as a wide author as well because it's less yes. work. And also if you are a multiple edition author. So the other thing that's great about a landing page now, at least the books to read offers, is that they will include audiobooks and print books. So you're not um, ignoring those readers. And I, I talk about this a lot with, re with reader magnets or, or newsletter bait, um, which is you should, if you are wide and if you are multiple editions, which if you are hybrid and come out of trad, you are, whether you like it or not, you should be offering bait that accesses all different kinds of readers. So you want to offer something like early access to an audiobook as well as a digital exclusive or a freebie or whatever. And you want to offer the occasional like five signed special editions, you know, first come first serve kind of thing. Pay to play. Like it, I feel like it's okay to offer exclusives to your newsletter that are paid exclusives so long as they're exclusive. Just to make sure you're sort of satisfying not just the readers of all your different series, but um, the re the readers who consume in different ways. And the Books to Read landing page does that for me. It it also satisfies all of those readers. So I'm not constantly answering the question, yes, but what about the print edition? <laughs> I can be like, huh? huh? Here it is. So even when I post like, the Solace is on sale for $2.99. Right. I'll, I'll post that occasionally because I'll just be like, it's a great onboarding book. It's for sale for cheap. It's a traditionally published book. So it's rarely for sale for cheap, but it's, it's an ebook. It's the ebook that's on sale for $2.99 and I'll, and it's for the US market only. And I'll say that. Uh, but the link I use is the books to read landing page, uh, because it's possible that it's the first time somebody has learned about Solus and they're actually a print reader and they're still interested in buying it. So might as well have those links there. And like I said, I did run, I did two waves of testing on a launch to see whether that that landing page click through really did have an, a psychological impact and it did not on my pre-order readers. So which are the ones I can track. Um, so yeah, so I think perhaps that's old data. I think maybe that that data is that rumor that having a landing page and not using a direct link is 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 from it's from you know maybe five or six years ago, um, and that people are now accustomed to buyers are now accustomed to a landing page and a little bit more familiar with it. Um, and it is also possible I should caution that you know it depends on your readers and where they're centered, but also what kind of advertising campaign you're running. So if you're running a specifically a, a sort a certain kind of advertising campaign, you might want to specifically target just Kindle readers or something. You might want to change your verbiage depending on which marketplace you're going to target and stuff like that. So um, I haven't really looked into that side of the data. Excellent. It all makes perfect sense, Gil. 
That's it for part one. Don't forget to join us next Thursday for part two of our interview with Gail. If you found this episode interesting or helpful, make sure you subscribe to The Writer's Mindset on YouTube or your favourite podcast platform. Or all of them, we don't mind. Everything from a like to a rating to a review to a subscribe to shouting about us on social media helps us to reach more writers so that they can overcome the mindset issues that are holding them back with their writing too. If you're on social media, come join us on Instagram at Writers Mindset Pod or join our Facebook group, which you can find by searching for the Writers Mindset. And don't forget to come join us over on Patreon for our bonus series, Healthy Habits. See you next time. Keep writing. Keep writing.